In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. What were you like as a child? I see some smiles. I see some grimaces. There are a few of you who have been in this church long enough that I've heard stories about you when you were children from your elders, Bobby. <laughs> right, but we all have things from our youth that we're proud of, hopefully, and things from when we were kids that we kind of look back on and wince. We go, why would I do that? Who was I back then? Or, or maybe better, how could my brothers and sisters have been like that, right? Okay, maybe, maybe you had better brothers and sisters than I did. I don't know. Hold on to that. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Man sins, time passes, humanity grows, and sin abounds. Almost the whole of the third chapter of Genesis deals with sin and the ramifications of what happens. And then Noah comes, and we know the story from there, don't we? Noah and his family are called to build the ark, and it takes years. They come, the animals enter, that's the part we remember, right, from Sunday school. Two by two or seven by seven. And then the water comes from everywhere. The Bible says from the sky, from the earth, from all over. And after 40 days in the ark, the waters begin to recede. And a little while later, God speaks to Noah and his family again. First he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Then God starts talking to them. He says, I'll establish my covenant with you. One that never shall, never shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Anyways, here God is restarting things. And he makes that promise to never destroy the earth by flooding again. And even after that promise, he continues. He tells Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh on the earth. This is the first time that God gives a guarantee to humanity. I'll not wipe you out in the flood again. And he leaves the rainbow behind in the sky as a sign of his first covenant with all mankind, all humanity. I've heard it said symbolically, God is leaving this bow, this instrument of wrath, hanging it up into the skies. Why does God do that? To you, O oh Lord, I lift up my soul. My God, I put my trust in you. Let me not be humiliated, nor let my enemies triumph over me. When we read our psalm this evening, David here is again writing a song to the Lord, thanking him for protection and victory in his life. David's thankful. He prays, show me your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. And he asks God to show him how to live and where he should go and what he should be doing. David says, God, I'm willing to learn and I'm willing to mature. He says, remember, O Lord, your compassion and love, for they are from everlasting. Why can David say this? He can say it because the next thing David says is this. Remember not the sins of my youth and my transgressions. Remember me according to your love and for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. We've all done things in our childhood, in our youth, that we're not proud of. And this is where it gets interesting. David knows that he's made mistakes. He asks God here not to remember them. Instead, he says, Lord, remember me from your love. Remember who I am now, not for the mistakes I've made in the past, but for the way I've matured, the way I've changed. He goes on to say, all the paths of the Lord are love and faithfulness 
to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. David is confident that the Lord is going to do what God promised because all God's pathways lead to love and faithfulness, especially to those who follow his paths, like it did for Noah and his family. Our gospel begins this evening by saying, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now we're back a little bit in time. We're back at the beginning of Mark. During the first Sunday in Lent, we always read the story of Jesus' temptation. For Mark, this story begins with his baptism. As an adult, Jesus goes to the River Jordan and is baptized by his cousin John. And when he goes down into the water and comes out, what happens? He hears a voice from heaven calling out, You are my son, the beloved, and with you I am well pleased. Now last week we heard the story of the transfiguration, right? Jesus is up on the mountain with James and John and Peter. And suddenly he's glowing, and he has Elijah to one side and Moses to the other. And as the disciples start to freak out, a cloud descends and the voice says this, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. At that point, after everything they had seen, Peter, James, John still needed to be reminded to listen and believe what Jesus was saying. But here at the beginning of his ministry, the Father starts by affirming who Jesus is. Jesus is my son. He's the beloved. Then he tells how he feels about what Jesus has done so far. By obeying, by being baptized, he tells them, I'm pleased. But from there, circumstances start to change. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. It's worth noting here that God is still pleased with Jesus. But Jesus is living in this broken world, and he's getting to experience it fully. Now I'll say this, if there's ever one day where you wake up, and you feel like you're in the middle of the wilderness, that yesterday, it seemed like God was close at hand and loved, and he loves you and he's listening, and the next day, maybe the next moment, you feel like you've been abandoned. Remember, God still loves you. God still loved Jesus. He still drove his only beloved son out into the wilderness. Mark goes on to say, He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Jesus was sent out to the wilderness for 40 days, like Noah and his family spent 40 days on the ark. Now, some people have suggested that the Bible uses 40 days or 40 days and 40 nights, the same way that people around here use the phrase, it's been a minute. If I say, Jenny, it's been a minute since I've seen you, how long has it been since I've seen Jenny? Could be a long time, right? Could be a week, could be a month. I had somebody tell me, it's been a minute since I've been here at St. Paul's. Well, when was the last time you were here? Oh, about 40 years ago when I was confirmed. It's been a minute, right? Some think that this phrase along the way just became to me a long time, but a long, difficult time. 40 days in a storm, filled with animals, not easy. Moses spends 40 days more than once on the mountain talking to God long time. Either way, Jesus is in the wilderness living with the wild animals. And for some of us, that would be okay. And for others, that's not good at all, right? Now, I mentioned last week that Elijah was fed by ravens as he was living by the brook Cherith. 
And Jesus here today is being taken care of by the angels while he's in, while he's in the wilderness. Now, unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark doesn't dwell in temptations itself. We don't get those images of Jesus on the pinnacle of the temple or on the high mountain. He's just there. But so is Satan. But more importantly, so is the Father. And then Mark goes on to say this. Now after Peter was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. When the time was right, Jesus goes out and begins to declare the gospel. The next thing he'll do is start to call his apostles in the coming days. What was the result of all this? What's the result of that proclamation of good news? Peter writes this. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteousness for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus knew what was going to happen that day, the day he was baptized by John in the River Jordan. It was the beginning. It was the beginning of a time where he already knew what the outcome would be. The crucifixion didn't catch him unawares. We read this in Mark again and again and again. Towards the end, he's telling the disciples, this is what's going to happen. And they don't understand it. And they're afraid to ask. But the king of glory loved us so much that he's willing to walk into a trap that Satan thought he had set. The one that didn't work the way Satan thought it would. Why? Because God's love is from everlasting to everlasting. Peter goes on to write, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through the water. Think back to Noah's day. It's been millennia. It's been millennia since the time that, that the flood would have happened, and the time that Peter's writing has been even more millennia today. Peter's saying, listen, those who were in the flood, God didn't quit loving them. Jesus went and he preached to him. When we say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. That part of what Jesus was doing when he descended to the dead was preaching to these spirits, according to Peter. We affirm what Paul wrote in Ephesians when he writes, It is said when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive and gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, it does mean that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. But he who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Jesus went and preached to those who lived before any of God's covenant. And he told them, you are loved. Peter goes on to say, baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus obeyed when he went to be baptized by John. Not that he needed to have his conscience cleared. He didn't have any sins to be forgiven, but to show his obedience, to show that he was one with us. 
Peter says the flood and God's continued love for those people shows and prefigures our baptism in the same way that when Paul tells the Corinthians, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters. Our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And Moses and the people of God moved through the Red Sea. Paul is saying they were in a sense baptized. God uses water as a symbol of his redemptive work. He uses it in our lives and in Jesus' life through his baptism. He used it in Moses' days through the parting of the Red Sea. And Peter says here that he was using it in Noah's day because God did not simply judge them and give them no hope for redemption. He sent Jesus to them. And I know this is a hard passage sometimes to understand, but the truth of it is this. God's love is from everlasting to everlasting. Forty days is a long time. We've just started our 40 days of Lent. But sometimes 40 days isn't long enough. Jesus will spend another 40 days on the earth between the resurrection and ascension. And I'm sure as he was going back up into heaven, the disciples felt like he could have stayed another 40 or 80 or 40 years with them. these days, when you're going through things, know this. God is with us. He'll even come to find us in the most remote, the strangest of places. That's his love for us. And in this season of Lent, remember God's love as we work on ourselves. Amen.